Welcome to our sermon podcast here at Cornerstone Anglican Church. We are a new church plant in Chicago's West Loop neighborhood, seeking to participate in God's story of transformation. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Hello. Wow, this is there's a lot of space. That's fun. Um, okay, before we get going, I just want to make sure that we understand what's happening in this story of Jeremiah. So for about 37 chapters of Jeremiah, he's been saying, the Babylonians are going to come. It's going to be really bad. This is your last, 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 last chance. Please repent. And everyone's like, no, I think we're good. And they're like, you know, years and years and years are going by. And Jeremiah's like, God, like you told me to come and proclaim this terrible news to people. And now you're not following through. Like, what's going on? And finally, the Babylonians have come and besieged the city of Jerusalem. And the people of Israel have then (laughs) said, hey, Egypt, we'll be your servants if you come rescue us. Because that really worked out well the first time. And... Egypt is like about to come, so the Babylonians have removed for a little bit, and Jeremiah's like, let me go check on some land, you know? Got to see a guy about a horse, but land. Um, (laughs) And he's walking out of the city gate, and some thugs basically kidnap him, put him in a prison. He thinks he's going to die there. He comes before the king. The king says, Jeremiah, do you have any word? And he's like, yeah, same word I've been telling you the whole time. Babylonians are coming. You're all going to die. And he's like, great. And then he's like, please get me out of this prison. So the king's like, okay, and puts him in a slightly better prison where he gets one loaf of bread each day. And then some of the same people, presumably, who kidnapped him come to the king, and they're like, hey, we'd like to kill Jeremiah. And the king is like, okay, do it. And so they grab Jeremiah, and they take him, and they throw him into a cistern and leave him there to die a slow, painful death in isolation. And then a Cushite comes to the king, and he's like, hey, we should save Jeremiah. And the king says, okay, do it. And so he goes and he rescues Jeremiah out of the cistern using the rope and the clothes. Um, And this passage stirs something in me. Uh, that's a little bit hard to put words around and that's relatively angsty. So I turned to the medium I have for angst since junior high, which is mediocre poetry. <laughs> so I'm going to read you this spoken word that I wrote after, after reading this uh, about six months ago. When God gives me a word, I speak it no matter what it costs but it doesn't matter. They still throw me in their prison, and then even when I get out and beg for my life, I'm watching the world burn while I chew on my one loaf of bread every day. Just enough to keep me alive, but not enough to stop the hunger pangs. I loved this place and this people with all my heart, but it didn't matter. They still threw me in a cussing cistern. And here I am drowning in the rot and the muck and thinking, why, God, why? Why was I born if just to suffer? If God wanted a punching bag, could he not have found one more sturdy, less sensitive? 
You know that's what they all say about me, right? Your biblical scholars. That I was depressed. That I had an oversensitive personality. That I had mental health issues. Well, I'd like them to try being Yahweh's prophet for 29 years and be beaten and mocked and reviled and nearly killed just to be saved, just to be thrown in a cussing cistern and see how they like it. What's the point? What's the point of being God's mouthpiece? What's the point of hearing from Yahweh? When I was a young boy in Hebrew school and I thought about prophetesses like Deborah and great men like Moses, I thought, I would like to be like that. And when the word of God first came to me, I thought myself so blessed. And now I'm in a cussing cistern. Moses was never in a cussing cistern. I guess some mouthpieces have all the luck. Why, God? Why? What's the point? Fine, you know what? It's fine. I was fighting it. Something weak, something terribly human in me. I gave in. I begged for my life. But this time, I'm not going to fight it. They want to kill me. They want to send these weary, tormented bones down to Sheol. Do it. And may the wrath of the Almighty and the anger of his wrath be fierce. May all that he has proclaimed over you through me be as he says and more. May you watch your households burned and your children carried off into a foreign land to serve foreign kings. May you see all that you love taken from you, even as you took all that was good from me. I won't fight it anymore. Here I am, Jeremiah. Let me die. Jeremiah, is that you? Take these rags and put them under your armpits and we will lift you out of this pit. We have come to save you. Oh, good grief. Have you ever felt like that? Isn't that how we feel lately? What's the point? God, do you even care? Why do I even bother being faithful if this is where I end up? Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor and psychologist, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, he recounts story after story of people who were able to endure incredible suffering because they could find meaning in it. And he theorized that if you can find meaning, you can metabolize even the worst suffering. You can endure and become a happy and healthy person afterwards. But what meaning is there for Jeremiah here? What meaning is there in doing the right thing for decades and being hated and isolated and not believed? And then when the proof that he was telling the truth finally comes... He gets moved from one prison to the next, inches from death, living in terror. And in the end, even though Jeremiah gets out of prison, he never sees his people made whole. He lives in a land where the temple and the city have been destroyed, and the bulk of the people that he knew have been taken into captivity in Babylon. What meaning is there in that? 
What meaning is there for us? What meaning is there in a global pandemic and now nearly a full year of isolation, boredom, anxiety, a thousand awkward conversations getting consent to give our close friends hugs? feeling our own aerosolized spit dry on our chin and lips, stupid, stupid fights with our spouses and our roommates, and shouting into the echo chambers of the internet, knowing it won't work, but hoping somehow, something, somehow will change when it never seems to. Where is the meaning in that? What's the point of all the pain? God, do you even care? These are not the most painful questions I've had to ask God, but they are very close. They're very hard to tolerate. And so before we go any further, I want to take a moment to try to connect to each other so that we can go through this together. Because I think the temptation here is gonna to be to isolate. All of our suffering is different, and it's easy to feel like we are the only ones who suffer or we are the only ones who suffer as we do. And so before we go into this tension to try to hold it and to try to face these things, I wanna ask a few questions and I'm actually gonna ask you to raise your hand if you can relate to some of the things that we're saying so that we can visually see where the people around us are. How many of you can relate to feeling like you're at the bottom of a cistern? And how many of you can relate to feeling like maybe God doesn't care after all? How many of you are not really sure what the point or what the meaning of this is anymore or have asked that recently. So I want us to go through this together. Um, we are in a strange moment where so many of us are in the same place. And I'm gonna to try to answer those questions as best I know how. But first, I wanna talk about the promises of God. What God doesn't promise us in the midst of this and what God does promise us. So we're gonna talk first about what God doesn't promise us and then the promise of his presence and the promise of Easter. What we want God to promise us is that if we have Jeremiah's faithfulness, we won't meet Jeremiah's end. That if we do the things that he asks, if we give our very selves to him, that he will protect us from the things that we dread. Not that we would have a pain-free life, but that we would be protected from those evils that reach into the deep places of ourselves and twist. But he doesn't, and that hurts. In fact, what God tells us is that if we follow him, more often than not, we will be like lightning rods for evil. 
The scriptures tell us scores of story about people who did their best to worship and to obey, and they faced the same gut-twisting tragedies that their, counter, their unfaithful counterparts did. If anything, they faced more. Do you think it was without an ounce of horror that Mary realized she was pregnant out of wedlock in the first century? I don't envy the life that Paul lived, not in its reality of fear and constantly running from people who were trying to kill him and imprisonment and beatings and being distrusted by the people he gave everything for. Moses may not have been thrown into a, into a cistern, but he did spend the best years of his life wandering around in a desert with people who complained all the time. God doesn't promise us that he'll protect us from the evils in this world that we dread the most. And we have to accept that before we can go any further. And it's important to note, too, that there's someone else that does promise us that they'll protect us from the cisterns. Idols. Idols are going to promise you that they can protect you from the evil that you dread. But they're like cosmic con, art, con artists playing on our fears and playing on our deepest desires. If what you want most in the world is for your children to grow up safe and happy, then the idols will whisper to you, just give a little more of yourself to the worry, to the parenting books, to the telling yourself that you're a bad parent, to the shame, and your kids will be okay. And you keep giving a little more and a little more. If what you want most in the world is to be successful, to do something important, just give a little more of yourself to the work, to the effort. Give a little more of your energy. If what you want most is to be accepted, they'll say, just give a little more of yourself to that insecurity, to that voice inside that pushes you to try harder and try harder and worry more about what others think of you. If you want a perfect marriage more than anything in the world, then the idols will whisper to you, just give a little more of yourself. Keep micromanaging your spouse or yourself or give a little more but they never deliver. Like addicts, we keep coming back and giving more to get less until we find ourselves empty and broken in a lump on the floor. And so admittedly, these are not great choices. But what we need to understand is that evil will touch us. It will touch you and the people that you love and your dreams and your friends, and your children. And you can face that trusting God, who promises that he'll be with you, and who promises that after death comes new life. Or you can try to run away from it and give yourself to idols who will take everything and give nothing in return. 
God doesn't promise to protect us from the things we dread most, and that hurts. But if you want Jesus more than anything else in this world, then suffering can never be truly meaningless. Now, I want to stop before we go on and say that evil is still evil and suffering grieves the heart of God. We are all too tempted to silver lining this problem and to try to pretend like being in the bottom of a cistern almost dying is really not that bad after all. Maybe I'll write a book about it someday and it'll help lots of people. This is not God's attitude. He is grieved by evil. He weeps with you and for you. But there is something that happens in suffering for the Christian that can happen no other place. And it's where we find our true selves and it's where we encounter Jesus in ways we can't anywhere else. And there's all these verses that seem either stupidly optimistic or strangely mysterious. Like Paul's words, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Or James, the brother of Jesus, who says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And Paul, again in Romans, says, But we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. When you suffer, when you face these pains that, that feel like they're crushing you, or where you've gone to the place where you thought was your max, like let's say your max is here, and now the suffering has gone on for like another six months, right? Yeah, this is the place where God helps us become who we truly are. God knows who you are. He knows who you were meant to be. He knows that your worst moments are not really who you are. And in suffering, he grows the ability to be your true self in all situations. But I think more important than that, it's in suffering that we encounter Jesus in a way that we can't encounter him anywhere else. Because Jesus is near to the brokenhearted in a way that he simply is not near to the wholehearted. And so when you weep and grieve over the death of family and friends, you can encounter Jesus who wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And you can meet him there. And when you weep, over the folly of people who can't be bothered to protect their neighbors by wearing a mask, you can encounter the Jesus who looked over Jerusalem and wept and spoke of the way that he longed 
to gather this stubborn people to himself. And when the anxiety of it all becomes too much and you find its weight bearing down on you, you can encounter Jesus, whose anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane was so intense that his sweat was like drops of blood. And when you feel certain that God has abandoned you and that he no longer cares or sees or knows, you can encounter the Jesus who went to the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus is with us when we suffer, and we can encounter him in suffering in a way we can encounter him nowhere else. And it is good. It's slow, and it's painful, and it's costly, but it is good. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking if you're like me. If God is so star-spangled awesome, why can't he give us the good stuff fast and without all the pain? It's a good question. And here's the answer. He wanted to. That's why he made this whole world and put his very self inside of us. Because he wanted that for us. But humans, we invited evil and suffering into the world, and we invited it into ourselves. So God had a terrible choice. And we see this in the account of Noah. He could get rid of evil and suffering only by getting rid of us. And he wasn't willing to do it. And so instead, God waited patiently. And he watched as his people suffered and wandered off and rebelled until the right moment to send Jesus so that we could find a way out of this impossible predicament. And Jesus did something incredible that can only be explained through balloons. So, oh, hold on. So this balloon is going to represent the evil and suffering and death. I'm going to draw a little, little skull and crossbones. Thanks, Nate. I'm an above-average doodler. Not really an artist, but... Okay. So, <clears throat> so evil and suffering enter the world through humanity's invitation. And what we see that this means throughout the rest of Scripture 
is that humanity cannot actually escape this death and evil and suffering. They're bound, humanity is bound to evil and death and suffering. So that no matter what humanity does, this evil is going to follow them around until finally they die. Okay? And the only way, like we said, God can't rescue humanity from this without destroying them. Maybe imagine like this is like an artery and you cut it and like they bleed out or something. It's a little graphic, but okay. So what Jesus does is he comes and he takes on our flesh, our humanity, including this little guy. And he carries it in himself. And he experiences the isolation and the anxiety and the grief and the fatigue and the hunger and the thirst of humanity and the suffering and the evil and the death. And he goes to the cross. And he's murdered by the people that he came to save. And then he's buried And he spends a day in a tomb where everything seems hopeless and where his friends put the cold, dead body of God in a cave with the last of their hopes. But what Jesus is up to during that time... Oops, this isn't going to work out. is creating a path from death into new life. And so while his friends grieve and they sit in the place that we are all sitting, where we are long past optimism and wonderful platitudes, and we think really for sure this time, We are done. Jesus bonds new life to death. So that now for those who belong to Jesus, whenever they experience evil and suffering... It still hurts just as much as before. And there's this long day on Saturday of hopelessness and then new life. And so we move through this rhythm as Christians over and over and over again in our our lives. We, we We face tragedy We go into a place of hopelessness, and then God brings good, new life bursting out of it. Far later than we wanted, far slower than we wanted, but it comes. Until in the end, we walk through the doors of death into new life. And then when the time comes... God cuts 
the cords of death, finally and forever, and those who belong to Jesus live in the next age, a new life bursting forth into new life. And he destroys evil and suffering and this world and the people who are infected by it and have refused help. So where is the meaning in this? There was none before. But Jesus has come. And he, he has made it so that when we suffer, we can encounter him. And that when we suffer, we can look forward to new life. We can walk through the pain of it and the hopelessness until new life comes. What is the point of all of this? There was none. We were destined to destroy ourselves and this world and one another for no reason at all until God intervened. And now all suffering bears a promise with it. Our very judgment has become our opportunity for redemption. God, do you even care? God cared so much not only about you and your suffering, but even about your feeling of being God forsaken. And he sent his son, his very self, to come and to take all of your pain and to experiencing it, to experience it and even your God forsakenness, this feeling of God abandoning you so that he could walk with you through all of it into new life. It doesn't make the suffering go away. I wish it did. And it doesn't make evil good. It shouldn't. It doesn't mean that the pain stops or that it's going to be over tomorrow, but it does mean that there is a basic level of meaning for the Christian in suffering. It means that something happened at Easter and that new life is coming. Easter is coming and it will always come. So hold on. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.